0: I had little kids doing trigonometry as part of the egg drop, actually, because we had to measure, find out how tall the school was to find out what the drop height was, so that we could calculate the mass-time acceleration. If you're learning all this other advanced stuff, is it's you know who cares if you miss a few things and get to them at another time.
1: That's Heidi Fuhrer. Heidi's teaching in what she terms a micro school that she and her business partner founded in the Minneapolis area. And this is a model that I fully expect to become much more popular as we move through this pandemic. This was recorded earlier back in November when approval for a potential COVID-19 vaccine was was a ways off. And even though we have this preliminary emergency use approval, we're still going to be slogging through this pandemic for a little while now. And I'm really hoping that some of these lessons that we've learned in the education world will be carried forward and that we'll have a chance to grow and develop new models and be able to look at education in a completely different light as we emerge from this. In the meantime, while we're getting through this, this micro-school model that Heidi and her business partner have developed in Minneapolis, I think we're going to see more of that. And I think that's a good thing. I think that more programs that allow a teacher to meet their students where they are is only going to make better teachers, make better students, and it's going to benefit all of us in the long run. We also have a chance in this episode to talk about taking the screens out of learning, which in this world of distance learning and this pandemic crisis education is no small feat to accomplish. Heidi takes an active learning approach that activates all types of learning across the grade levels. I even get to geek out with her a little bit about the egg drop and how it affected me for a number of years. And here in my 40s, it still sticks with me. Heidi takes a circumspect view of education and knows that a lesson plan can teach so much more than what is seen on the surface. We also talk about how, even with just a few students, COVID affects how she teaches. Much like Kelsey, back in episode 5, which you should go back and listen to if you haven't already, Heidi is forced to take the fluff out of her lessons and really get down to what's important. I want to take a moment here for a little housekeeping most teachers, if they haven't started already, their winter break begins next week. And I am going to, again, take a break myself that week. I hope all the teachers out there can rest and recharge and and be ready to tackle the rest of their school year coming into the winter and into this light at the end of the tunnel that we are seeing with the future of educating kids in this age of covid i know those vaccines aren't going to be like ripping off a band-aid and everybody running back to school but it is a start it is progress and i for one am already looking forward to next school year so next week winter break take some time to relax. I'm going to be taking a week off. There will be no episode of Life Behind the Desk next week. Take that time to be with your families, responsibly so. Enjoy a little bit more relaxed holiday season than we're accustomed to. I'm going to be working on a few more behind-the-scenes things. I have some exciting stuff planned for next year that I really want to get to. And I just need a little bit more time to tighten that up before I make an announcement to you, the listeners. Before we get to Heidi's episode, I just wanna say one more time thank you. Thank you for the time invested in this project. You honor me with the time you invest in listening to this project, and honor the participation of the teachers who take their time to appear on this podcast. Time is the one asset we can never get back and we can never produce more of, and I want to thank you for spending yours with me. Now, let's get to Heidi's episode.
0: Welcome to the Life Behind the Desk podcast, where teachers can give voice to what it's really like to be the one handing out the grades. You'll hear about the highs and lows of the job, the daily challenges, and the big-picture struggles, and how that job's changed with distance education and COVID-19. It's a place where teachers with different experiences can share the parts of the job parents and students don't get to see, like staff meetings, how much work gets done outside of the classroom, and the tiers and just maybe what summer vacation really looks like. And now, let's go behind the desk with Jonathan Miller and this episode's education superhero.
1: Welcome back to Life Behind the Desk, everybody. In this week's episode, I'd like to welcome Heidi Fuhrer, who is teaching from the Midwest. So Heidi, if you could just introduce yourself a little bit, tell us where you're at, what you're teaching, and we'll go from there.
0: I'm Heidi. I am um, uh, just recently opened a micro school that serves K through 12 in uh, near Minneapolis, Minnesota. I started as uh, teaching at the college level in the English department at Mankato, and and then I was substitute teaching in Minneapolis public schools for four years, and now I have joined a an amazing business partner to open uh, this micro school to serve changing needs during the pandemic. And I've got uh, about five kids who are I'm providing all their curriculum because they are homeschooled. And I have one student who I'm supporting uh, through distance learning. And we're probably going to pick up more distance learning kids soon, we hope. So the students that you have at your center, how
1: is that arranged? Are they registered as homeschoolers with the district, but they're just coming to your center for, is it the bulk of their education? Are you doing everything? What does that arrangement look like?
0: Yeah, well, for, for now it is, um, it's the bulk of their education. I mean, we do ask them, you know, tell parents that it's, it's best if they're, you know, in learning mode all the time at home. We hope they're providing them. And there are some things that we don't um, provide yet that we would like to provide. Like we're just getting a, a physical education program off the ground. We have uh, one teacher and one administrator. So it's um, it's a lot. I've got I'm teaching many different levels at the same time. But uh, you know, these are kids who were not it's like the public school system wasn't understanding them. Like they it, like I told you about my partner and her son, the the it it just wasn't working for them. Her son uh, was developing like tantrums and stuff which he had never had before because he was having such a tough time with um reading in his traditional school so she knew she had to find something else that worked better for him and she but she's a working mother she works full-time a very busy businesswoman and um she didn't have time to homeschool him um so she found me and um it turned out it's working it's and he's they're thrilled with it now it's working very well and uh it turns out other families Want the same thing, so let's take a quick break.
1: This month's sponsor is Coach Hall Writes. In 2019, Coach Hall began a YouTube channel as a medium to support her students outside the classroom. Today, that YouTube channel and resulting website has grown into one of the top resources for AP language and composition teachers to help their students pass their advanced placement exams. You can learn more at CoachHallWrites.com and explore all of the resources Coach Hall offers. Coach Hall was also an early guest on Life Behind the Desk. This means you can listen to her episode on this very same podcast. Links for that episode and the Coach Hall Wright's website are available in the show notes of Season 2, Episode 3 of this podcast. And now, back to the show. That's incredible to hear that, you know, just a different environment, a different approach to teaching has really um, has really opened him up and is serving him where he's at. It sounds like this is a great model for being able to meet students where they're at. So, yeah,
0: it is. It is because like I've got uh, one of my math groups has a second grader, a third grader and a sixth grader in it because that's what level they're at. It's like the littler ones are a little bit advanced and the older one is, uh, is, uh, you know, del- quite a f- bit behind and, you know, so we don't really think about grade levels very much. Um, We just kind of meet them where they are. So, but it's working, you know, and that's it's, awesome. Are it's you amazing know? how much the little kids, sorry, the, the younger ones are picking up from, being it's like a the one room schoolhouse kind of model they're from being around the older kids curriculum it's they pick it they can do it they just aren't usually exposed to it so when they're exposed to it they just start doing it and it's it's amazing
1: how has that cohort kind of learning where it spans such a broad age range how have what effects on the older student have you seen
0: I I was hoping, and I I thought that I would see more of uh, the the older ones taking more of a mentorship kind of uh, role. That's not quite what I'm seeing yet, but uh, that could be because our older students are actually, br- our two high school students are brothers, and. <laughs> their uh, their younger siblings are also uh with us, so uh, quite a bit of our of our student body right now is related to each other. So, um, <laughs> but I think when we get more of a mix of of people, I'm hoping that we'll that the older kids will benefit from teaching the younger kids because i'm sure that you've probably heard you know or maybe know from experience that when you teach something that's a really great way to learn it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I in my career as a corporate trainer, one of the big tools that i use a lot in my classroom are teach backs. You know, we'll learn mm-hmm. this skill, we're learning software or whatever it is, and the way i always explain it to my learners is the best way to find out what you don't know is teach somebody
0: else. Absolutely. A hundred percent. That's what, that's one thing that I love about teaching is that it's the learning is never done. It's just such a giant unsolvable puzzle and it doesn't matter how long you do it. You'll never truly master every, you know, facet of it. And you can always get better and better and better. And that's what I have to be learning all the time or I feel like I'm going to die. So that's, and that's one thing that I'm, I'm, hoping to, to teach my students is not just, not just the material, you know, the math and the science and the um, grammar and everything. I want them to learn that. I want them to learn that learning is, is a great way to live. Like it's joyful. It's um like, for me, it's almost like a spiritual. That's how I connect like to spirituality, you know, but um, they, uh, yeah, that's what, one thing I try to try to instill in them is that, you know, learning can be whatever you want it to be because a lot of them come from, you know, a pretty adversarial relationship with school. Like um special education and a lot of black kids have an adversarial relationship with school because it's like the the teachers they don't they feel misunderstood, I think. And I think sometimes that goes back to like their parents had the same thing, and it's really sad.
1: I think it's a challenge when you know you come from this minority group and you're in a classroom and nobody looks like you.
0: You know, right. it, it's very clear who well, the. You know, a is. lot of a lot of black kids have not had a black teacher, which is really sad. So they they feel like it's not part of their culture. They feel like it's it's a it's not theirs. And I want these kids to feel like this. This is their theirs. Their education should be theirs. So I I'm hoping that the students will take more initiative, um, choosing their own projects to work on. Um, so I, I I try to keep them busy all the time with um, project based stuff. Like we just did a, a the egg drop challenge. We dropped uh, eggs off the roof and Learned about force and motion, and um, and uh, they they designed uh, contraptions to keep the egg from breaking. And I'm telling you, when I was doing a PowerPoint about Newton's laws of motion and asking them questions, they're sitting there like, um. Uh, but then um, when I'm up on the roof about to drop one of their parachutes down, and I'm going, okay. Who can tell me which uh, which forces are are gonna act on this on this contraption when I when I let go of it? And they're going gravity, air resistance, and um that's the way to get it in into their skulls is is to do things. So um, yeah, take
1: the learning and put it in the real world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I keep them busy with their hands cuz they don't want to sit in a chair and watch and listen to you lecture and watch or look at a PowerPoint. They don't want to do that. And they're um they're kind of over I don't I I'm a I think that kids are overexposed to technology like screens especially right now during distance learning. Um I think that they need and they they seem to love uh we don't use screens very much in my classroom because i mean unless they have to do it for distance learning but um because i feel like that's all they do at home um for both education and for um leisure time so we i try to get them off the screens off the computers and we just get into the science lab or the art room and we just Do things, make things. Like right now, we're we're uh, working on a couple things. We're doing, we're making a Rube Goldberg machine um, for the simple machines unit, and um, we are building a full scale human skeleton out of papier mâché, bone by bone. So these are that's
1: awesome. I love hearing about. Uh, taking up education and putting it in a practical environment. And I am so excited to hear kids are still doing the egg drop
0: project. Yep. <laughs> they love it too. <laughs> oh,
1: that was, I got to tell you, that was one of my absolute favorite things in elementary school. I still remember doing that. Yep. I still remember putting it together. I remember mine. Uh, my mom was a seamstress and worked at home mm-hmm. And I remember diving into her supplies and it was all this quilt batting that I had wrapped around. And I take it in there and I will never forget this. The, I took it in. We threw, we were throwing them over this ball wall and mine was fine. And one of the girls in my class, her mom delivered newspapers. So she had all these bags of the little rubber bands for newspapers. Mm -hmm. And I remember she had packed her egg in these newspapers and I'm sitting there thinking, these are hard, they're heavy. This is never gonna work. Sure enough, we throw it over the wall a couple times, eggs perfectly fine, cracks it open. And for years, I you know, you get bored, you start thinking about things. For years, I would still sit there and try and figure out how it was possible that her egg didn't break in the middle of <laughs> all of these rubber bands. You know, I like this is something that bugged me for like the next five, six, seven years until I got into (laughs) high school and into a conceptual physics class. And I was finally able to figure out, you know, how, how that worked. Yeah. So it's, yeah.
0: Yeah. We learned some good physics for this, uh, for this egg drop. And, and it was pretty much the same uh, curriculum the whole time, all the same materials for the littlest kids and the oldest kids. And we all learned, even me. Um, and we, I made it hard for them too because I gave them each a uh, hundred dollars in play money, and I set for they had to build their contraption out of uh, certain materials that I set up in a little store. And um, the materials that were uh, obviously going to make it super easy were very expensive, uh, like uh uh. We had marshmallows. Um, One marshmallow was $20. Um, We had, we had, I read that uh, cardboard makes it way too easy. So I made uh, an eight by eight inch square of cardboard was $20. Um, A plastic cup was $20. So, and then some of the the less obvious things like, you know, bamboo skewers and rubber bands and and stuff were, were more affordable. So it was interesting to see um what kind of uh cool solutions they came up with for that so and
1: Uh, that is so cool the um i want to kind of go back to something you were talking about how one of the cool things about teaching is you are never done learning and it's much like it's for me i kind of equate it to a lot of professions like Being a doctor or a nurse, you know, it's referred to as a practice. It's not a Mm -hmm. master, because you're always learning, you're always getting more. And, you know, I've heard, um, you often hear reference to the craft of teaching, and I think it's the same concept, is you're constantly working, you're constantly honing your craft to be a better teacher. Um, And I'm kind of curious, starting this new venture, this micro school, how, how has that challenged or informed your concept of being a successful teacher how has that kind of challenged you to hone your craft
0: well one of the biggest challenges is getting all those different grade levels into such a short amount of time one way that we keep it affordable for parents because we don't want this to be just for you know upper middle class kids we want it to be affordable for for everyone, hopefully. Um, one way that we keep it affordable is, is, uh, that we have a four day week. And one way that we keep it safe from COVID is that we have a small, we've broken it up into morning cohort and a afternoon cohort. So, um, right now we only have one, uh, at, we have a four, four hours in the afternoon. So it's from one to five and, um, Monday through Thursday so that is not very much time so we don't we don't do lunch and recess uh, we don't uh, we we don't do a lot of the the things it we have to be very very efficient um, and it's pretty much direct instruction all the time because you know that's uh, that's what I'm do I'm doing direct instruction all the time they have they have their independent work time while I'm working with other grade levels. So, um, that's tough is the, the time management with so many grade levels is it's tricky. So we're going to see how that works. It's kind of experimental, you know, right now, but, uh, we figured what's the worst that can happen if you, you know, so your second grader misses, uh, you know, the unit on, uh, commas or whatever I don't know (laughs) like um you know what's the worst that's gonna happen if they're also picking up like all these great like physics and I had little kids doing trigonometry as as part of the egg drop actually because we had to measure how find out how tall the school was to find out what the drop height was so that we could calculate the mass time acceleration if you're learning all this other advanced stuff is it's, you know, who cares if you miss a few things and get to them at another time? I don't know. I, um, of course the standards are important. And I'm not saying that the standards aren't important. Of course they are, but, um, you know, we're, we're flexible about when, you know, we meet them and, um, we're whole, so, we think that i'm i'm convinced that these kids if they get through a whole school year with me they will be far ahead of where they would have been in a regular even during a regular school year so
1: yeah it sounds like you're saying you know that yes the standards are absolutely important but there's things that are more important
0: yeah absolutely yeah absolutely you know, like learning to to love uh school and to love learning is that's important.
1: Yeah. As I look around today, I kind of see a severe lack of, of people who were taught to think critically.
0: <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. You know? I, yes. And that uh, starts at a uh, young age. Yeah, um, it does. It really does. I don't, I'm not sure if we've really focused on skepticism. Kind. Not, not really, uh, uh, you know, I haven't made a direct lesson plan out of it, but we we do talk about it from time to time. I like think I had a kid say, I don't believe in cavemen. And I said, what do you mean you don't believe in cavemen? And he said, well, because if, you know, Adam and Eve and everything, they were the first people and they could talk, they had language, they had, you know, they could cook food all this stuff. And then there's saying that there were people before humans that didn't have language. And, and I said, well, let's look at the sources and let's look at the, the, the purpose of the, you know, documents that, you know, and, um and we got to talking about, uh, you know, how the Bible just because, you know, we're not taking it literally doesn't mean that, you know, you're not Christian or, you know, and I, and about how most Christians don't take it completely literally. <laughs> um, so, you know, these things come up, but uh, hopefully, you know, critical thinking on their own will develop. I think it will.
1: Yeah. You know how growing up, there was those phrases that your parents use over and over that you, you learn to hate when you're a kid. And then as you're an adult, you kind of, one day you open your mouth and your parents come out. <laughs> and, and I know one of them for my son is going to be solve
0: the problem. Okay. Yep. You know, and, it's, and it's not just about math or
1: spelling. It's oh, this broke. Oh, I can't figure that. Solve the problem. Step yes. back. Let's
0: figure it out.
1: You're Absolutely. seven. You Absolutely.
0: I've got kids who are constantly asking me, "How do you spell this?" And I, I don't spell things for kids. Sorry. Figure it out. Sound it out. <laughs> um, or or look around the room because man these uh I'm seeing a lot everywhere I'm not just among my students but everywhere I'm seeing a lot of the pandemic has made kids very lazy about reading they if someone will read it to them they would rat they they i'm I'm finding that kids will, not read a lot of kids will not read something unless they absolutely have to but they're capable of doing it but other people will do it for them so they let them
1: yeah and one of we we've had that challenge here too and one of the things that has really kind of helped break that habit of hey read this to me yeah was and not that we don't help him with things but right. you know, he he he's seven he loves video games right oh, there's yeah. a, there's a couple that he really likes but some of the interaction is just text bubbles from characters yeah and, yeah that's, and i and i keep telling him you know hey if you want to play these games yep, you, you got, got to learn how to read these for yourself cuz i'm not going to do it
0: yep you absolutely know. absolutely you know if it's
1: yeah, if it's a four syllable word, sure, I'll help him sound it out.
0: Right, exactly. And yeah, this is uh the few words that my 5-year-old does know other than his name. They're from like Minecraft and Roblox and it's I, I'm not uh very super proud to say that, you know, he he plays a, quite a bit of those more than I care to admit. <laughs> Um, and I think a lot of kids do play, uh, video games more than their parents care to admit. And it's, uh, I think that at some point it's really bad for their brains. Like I, when I was sub, subbing, I taught every kind of student, um, in all kinds of, of, uh, classrooms and emotional behavior disorders and, um, all kinds of cognitive disabilities and and everything, and um seems like the most wild, crazy, violent children uh, had one thing in common, and that was they'd spend the entire weekend just stuck to glued to a screen unsupervised. I don't know i I watch out for for overexposure to stuff like that with kids.
1: <laughs> a lot of people my age didn't necessarily grow up in technology. I did. I My dad was a technologist from the very beginning, you know, starting in the late 70s. Okay. And I grew up around it, and it's I've still had to find myself now as my son gets involved in video games, and he loves it. Now I've had to kind of re-educate myself on the games that are out there. Yes. What, what is the game, and what is it doing? And, yeah, you're right. It's the on the unsupervised part scares me to death in the more cooperative games, which I think there's some value to be had out of that, But I have to educate myself to know what he's doing. Right. And I also have stepped back and looked at, okay, he wants this game. Well, is it just a shoot 'em up kind of game, or oh, hey, this one he's actually building a level and there's problem solving involved?
0: Yeah, yeah, some of them do have some good, valuable uh, stuff in it, like Minecraft and and like uh, we. I let my son. I don't let him play Roblox, but I let him play Roblox uh, Studio, where you can create a Roblox level. Like, some of that stuff is good. Minecraft is is pretty. Uh, there's it's it leaves a lot of room for creativity and. Uh, yeah, so. I think Minecraft
1: is incredible. He really enjoys uh, Mario Maker, where you okay. build
0: Mario levels. Oh my gosh, my son would go crazy for that. Oh, yeah, he I'm loves to it. find that one. Yeah, yeah, um, a lot of those ones that that allow for creativity, that demand creativity. Those are those yeah. are fantastic.
1: It demands it. And then one of them, he can't, you can't share the level until you've completed it. So you have yeah. to problem solve to make sure that it's actually, you know,
0: a playable yes. thing. Absolutely.
1: So, now you said your center is K through 12 and you just have a handful of students at the moment. What yes. does kind of that student makeup look like? It sounds like you've got some high schoolers and then yep. some younger
0: ones. I have a first grader and he's, Uh, he's the one who's enrolled in Minneapolis public schools and distance learning. But since he's only in first grade, uh, he gets his distance learning stuff done in less than half the time he's here. And the other half the time he is doing stuff with us. So he's doing a lot more than the rest of his first grade class. So, uh, uh, and we have a second grader, a third grader, uh, a sixth grader, and a ninth and tenth grader.
1: So it sounds like six kids, and you said you've got some uh, siblings in there. So yes, you're dealing with not just like the normal classroom dynamics. You're dealing with some family dynamic That's stuff. Tough. Too.
0: That is a big challenge. That two thirds of my student body are siblings in the same family. So because I've got the, the four four of these kids are are siblings of my six. So, um, uh, yeah, we wouldn't be in business without this fit one family. (laughs) Um, uh, so thank goodness that we have them, but, but, uh, it is really tough trying to, uh, get them to treat each other as classmates and not as siblings because there's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, arm punching and, and, uh, Picking on each other, tattling on each other, um, just, you know, bringing arguments from home. And and that is it it makes for a really difficult dynamic um, because it's such a huge percentage of the classroom. Um, You know, every teacher knows that sometimes a group of, you know, five students can be more difficult than a group of 30 students. Because just a couple of people, you know, is such a large percentage of the dynamic of the the group. So Yeah, and I've
1: noticed in smaller groups versus the larger groups, there's a certain amount of peer pressure to to behave. Whether it's felt or it's overt or not, that you know, it's I feel like that's part of it.
0: Right. In larger groups, you mean it's there's peer pressure to behave?
1: Yeah. yeah, that, You yeah. know, that's not there in smaller groups.
0: Yep. Exactly. It's easier to set uh, maybe it's a it's something with like a the power dynamic. It's easier to establish your your authority in a large group. And in a small group everyone's individual bearing is so much bigger. That it's they're they're almost as big as yours as the teacher, which they you know that's not how it's supposed to be, so um,
1: so you've referred to your program as a micro school. Is that a designation through the district or the state, or how does that work?
0: No, um that's what I wanted to know when I called. I found an ad in and uh, Craigslist, and it said, uh, we're we need to find the right person and we want to build a micro school and and i'm like what I- i'm intrigued what is this and uh and we kind of just uh, there are a few micro schools that are they're popping up all over the place because of the pandemic um it's not in as far as i know it's not an official designation anywhere um but it's it's happening like my uncle who just retired um uh, as a he was a high school teacher he's he's doing a micro school in uh, milwaukee Um, but it's just out of necessity. There's working parents. They absolutely just can't supervise their kids' education. They just can't do it. And they're terrified that, you know, their kids are going to flunk out of school or, um, at least fall incredibly far behind or not, you know, just, just having supervised during the day, just childcare is a big deal. And they need options. They need it. So this they're popping up all over the place. I know um before I got before I met my partner and started this, I was looking for jobs as a private tutor, because that was that's what a lot of uh wealthier families decided to do was hire private tutor form they form form um, learning pods. Have you heard about this pod, pod learning? So they're forming pods with, you know, in their neighborhood or their, their kid's classroom. And the parents were all chipping in on a, on a tutor to oversee the kid's education for, you know, six hours a day, five days a week or whatever. So I was looking into that. I interviewed with some people and um, it just wasn't the right fit with any of them, I guess. And then I found, Lisa, my partner, and, uh, we just hit it off. It was amazing. Just, uh, we're, we're such, so good together. I think, um, Lisa has kind of a, a her, her own kind of innovative brilliance. She's a, she's a, an entrepreneur. Um, and she, she, she said, you know, if we do this, you're not, you're not going to be my employee you're going to be my partner because and it's it's some risk that you'll be taking because we don't we don't know if uh if we're gonna if this we're gonna make a living or not and uh and i said well i don't have any money to invest and she's like i'll she's like okay i'll take care of all the the business stuff and you take care of all the teaching stuff. And I said, okay, that's great. And she's like the old school definition of an administrator, like admin is what they're supposed to be for is not to like put all these crazy regulations on you and force you to do paperwork. They're supposed to be there to make the, the real, you know, job of, of education, the, the meat of it, which is actually teaching, there's they're supposed to be there to make that easier. So to take care of all the other stuff so that you can just teach. And that's what she does. And she's very good at it. And um she's so she's our, our principal. And she's she's great. So
1: it's it sounds like she does a really good job of stopping any blockers from affecting what how effective you are in the classroom
0: yes she's great I couldn't ask for a for a better partner and she's she says the same about me like our uh, we just we balance out each other's strengths and and faults like she's mm-hmm. she's very neat and I am uh I she calls me her little tornado because I'm kind of a ADHD nightmare of stuff. Like I'm a very disorganized, um, but, uh, our classrooms looks beautiful because she, she, um, is really great at organization and it's good. It's, it's a good, good business partnership anyways.
1: That's wonderful. So with the students that you have now, how did you find those students or did they find you? And then what, Kind of what does the model look like going forward trying to find more students?
0: Well, uh, one of my students is Lisa's son. Four of them are a friend of Lisa's who before she started this, they both decided that they needed an alternative. And so she, she came into this knowing that her friend would uh, also have her kids here. So we knew that we'd have at least some students to start off with, which is good. Uh, so that's the four of them. And then uh, the, our other student found us. We just posted on social media. Where that's how we started getting the word out. We um, obviously need more. We, we hired a marketing firm um, on a trial basis. For a month and we didn't get any and we got some calls but nothing panned out from it so um, we were about to decide whether or not to keep that it's it's pretty pricey so I don't know Um, but we're we're having an open house on Friday this coming Friday and we're just right now we're doing like low tech so we're doing we're like printing up flyers and stuff and putting them on bulletin boards. And um, we tried, I tried uh, asking all of the teachers and principals I know, which is a lot um, to get the word out to parents that we're here for kids who are struggling with distance learning. And uh, I think people just don't know about us because I, I know that there's a demand for what we're doing. I know that there's tons of kids out there and families that are, are struggling and really stressed out about distance learning. Like, and kids who are depressed because they is, you know, they don't have a, <clears throat> they, they don't leave their house enough or get to be around people, around other kids their age. So I know that there's a demand for what we're doing. We just need to get the, the word out there. Yeah.
1: And it sounds like, you know, this, project was kind of born out of necessity from the pandemic yep. and kind of brings up the fact that, you know, school's primary function is education, you know, mm-hmm. to provide an, a base education for everybody across the board, how well that succeeds. You know, there's a lot of variables there, but that's that's kind of the goal of it the secondary thing in there that doesn't get talked about a lot. And unfortunately when I do hear it talked about, it kind of minimizes the role of a teacher, but it's that schools give kids somewhere to be while their parents have to work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's becoming a huge problem now. And, uh, what do you do? What a disaster. You know, I mean, I don't know how families are getting through it. I have no idea. I mean, I know that when this first started that there were tons of families everywhere going, what are we going to do? And what they ended up doing? I don't know. Like, I'm not sure how people are getting through this. Um, The effects
1: and how they're dealing are across the board. And I think, I think it's important to say on a regular basis that nobody is excelling at how this pandemic's affecting people. Everybody is doing the absolute best they can, and that yep. goes double for teachers. Yeah. They're, every teacher is doing the absolute best they can yeah, they with are. the circumstances that are, are presented.
0: Absolutely. And the, the teachers are, I think, one good thing for teachers that this is this is bringing to the attention of everyone. Everyone is finding out now how hard the job and how highly skilled the job of teaching is and how much respect it deserves. And it deserves higher pay, you know, to teach and and fewer regulation, you know, uh, I think... Don't okay don't get me wrong I love public education I believe in public education and even when going into this even still I I have a gross feeling about uh being involved in private education because I think that everyone deserves the only way that it can work is that if everyone has access to a high quality education and I think um, public schools are, although the teachers all have the best intentions and very, they're very highly skilled and very experienced. Um, they're, they're fighting an, against so many, and it's, there's It's the regulations. There's, you know, the standardized testing and uh, the all the data collecting. And like some places, you have to have so many, uh, so much improvement in your students' test scores, or you don't get hired the next year. Or it's and then some, like I a lot. Most of the schools that I subbed in uh, were schools that were just um, overly. Burned with um, kids that had like horrible, adverse childhood experiences, um, homelessness, mental health issues, learning disorders, you know. Um, so teachers are expected to do too much already. And a lot of times the administration and the, and the laws and the school boards, it they make it harder than it has to be. And that's what they're supposed to make it easier or at least better, but it's not working. The system is not working at least not where I, we are. And um, I think the quality of public education has really is failing. It's failing.
1: One thing that, Really worries me a great deal is the effect that this pandemic is going to have on that disparity of education. Because, yeah, yeah, you look at—I mean, yes, test scores. It's generally accepted that it's really not a good way to assess the whole student. It's not a good way. It's not the best way to say you know.
0: Terribly decide where money should go too. I mean. I don't know. Um, I I live. Uh, I lived in North Minneapolis, and that's where I was teaching most recently. And it's that's a uh, the more you know impoverished uh, part of the city, and um, the schools were like. Uh, the reason I ended up specializing in that area is at first is because uh, they paid a bonus to sub there because nobody wanted a sub there. I was like, well, I'm just going to make this my, my, it's my community anyway. So, and, um, just to see the, the difference in what this, what the quality of facilities, materials, equipment, um, in the same district, the, the South side kids, what they get is a lot better than what the North side kids get. Like, how does that work? It's yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, you know, even though test scores aren't a great way to assess uh, kids, you can look at zip codes and tell the difference in socioeconomic status based on um, test scores. And they line up with those zip codes. And it's not fair and it's not right. And I am so worried about the long-term effects that this pandemic is going to have on that disparity of education, because it's not going to get any better,
0: make it worse. And it's it already such a huge problem. It's just, it's, it's so sad. And I don't, I, I, but I feel like I really hope that there's a way that I can bring what I'm doing to, uh kids who who need it, and it looked like for a minute it looked like there might be there was a a woman who who said that she she could diagnose kids as as needing a learning pod for their mental health uh she was a mental health worker and she said uh and and then she could have the state health insurance pay for it to come to places like what I'm doing. And I'm like, if that happens, we will be, we will have to expand like really soon. That would be amazing. But, and I don't know, I don't think it ended up panning out that way, but like something like that would be great. But uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Cause that's another aspect that long-term we're going to have to deal with even for the schools who are back full in person, you know, there's a huge mental health toll taken on oh students. Gosh. Yes. It, it, it's astounding. Like one of my cousins, she finally sent her daughter to school. They had opened, but she was hesitant because of infection rates and all those things that you have to worry about. But her, I believe, six or seven-year-old was showing very 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 clear signs of clinical depression yeah and you know she had she had to it became you know health is a concern and infection is a concern but it, it came down to a choice between physical health or mental health yeah and i think and the other side of that is that this is having a huge mental health toll on teachers. You know, because the teachers that are teaching in person, there's that underlying
0: concern. Yeah, they've got to they put themselves, with, I mean, classrooms are gross. Classrooms, uh, kids are disgusting. They don't wash their hands properly. They're just snot factories, and there's just, you know, bodily fluids just everywhere, you know, I mean, in a regular classroom it, to have that kind of, I mean, I think that the only place that would be higher risk of infection would be a hospital. Like uh, teachers shouldn't have to risk their families. And well, and then some teachers have, you know, asthma or you can't, I mean, you could die. They're putting their lives on the line.
1: Yeah. The kind of the phrase I keep hearing is, you know, the teachers are kind of the canary in the coal mine and, and schools, if we're being honest, no matter how well cared for and cleaned the school is, and that varies a great deal again, among those zip codes, no matter how well cared for the school is, schools are kind of a public health nightmare to begin with.
0: absolutely. They're just going to be because it's children and, you know, it's they're gonna yeah. be there. There, there's gonna be snot and boogers everywhere. That's just bad. Yeah, and then, the, teacher, yeah,
1: and then the teachers that are teaching full online, you know, they don't want to be teaching this way. They want to be in the classroom. They want. to I know. Be yeah,
0: the- they don't want to, but yeah. What's the alter? Yeah, it's yeah, but here,
1: but here we are,
0: right? <laughs> yep. This is uh, in some ways. Um, and I, I know a lot of people that are feeling this way. In some ways, this is it's uh who said this? This was my partner who said this. It's like a slow apocalypse, like um all these systems are falling apart, but it's not like a like a nuclear bomb apocalypse where everything's gone the next day. It's like things are slowly kind of falling apart and being rebuilt. And um there's there's It's scary, but at the same time, because there's so there's so much possibility to rebuild in a way that works better to to make it make something anew and make it the way that we want it, not the way that the system just made it. And that is what Lisa and I are trying to do with this place. And like I have other friends who are doing this in other, you know, areas of life, like some uh, socialist friends of mine are building like a socialist utopia in their neighborhood. And, you know, just, um, you know, it's uh, and we we're like I'm in Minneapolis. We had uh, some issues with the police lately that you might have uh, heard about with police. Brutality, and, and they were talking about abolishing the police department and, um, you know, making some kind of new community protection uh, program and just the the possibility, it, it's exciting, you know, that yeah. we get rid of some of these old systems that are just awful and remake the world the way we want it.
1: Absolutely. I I really feel like there is this huge opportunity to come out of this better than we went in.
0: Absolutely. The next year
1: is going to be rough. It's going to be ugly. But as a whole, there's a lot of opportunity there, too. There is. Um, And... You know, I'm a little biased because I have such a strong commitment to education, but I really think teachers are going to be on the ground floor at that.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just think teachers need to be supported so that they can work their magic. Um, And I think if teachers were supported right, school would be better for everyone.
1: And that really kind of gets to the heart of, this project of trying to give teachers a forum where they can share those stories so that people understand, you know, more about the profession and more about what's needed to support that profession. So we're kind of coming, you know, down to the end of our time. But one of the things I really want to know is what drew you to teaching in the beginning and what drew you to this program and what's got you sticking it out, you know, at least in the interim and hopefully for the long haul.
0: Um, What drew me to teaching in the beginning? Um, I got a teaching assistantship in grad school um, where I was teaching my own section of um, English composition. And I found that, it was, it was just like, it was magical. I was like, this is my calling. What? I thought I wanted to be a writer. Like, no, it, it turns out I, it, I was so good at it. It was like, I just, I got up in front of the classroom and it's like a whole new person came out. It's like, I'm a natural. I don't know. I, um, I love it. And, um, and like I was just from the very beginning, like creating all of my own course materials and lesson plans. And um, just had so many ideas just, and um, that was, was fun. That was still one of the most, well, it was the most fun teaching uh, experience that I had, but now this is. So I learned after I, after I decided that I could not make a career out of adjunct professoring because of you know the lack of job security and decent pay. Um, then I learned a lot of. I think it was a it was a great experience to to do so much substitute teaching in you know impoverished schools. Um, I learned like the really difficult nitty gritty of, of classroom teaching. Um, like I, uh, most of like for, for three years in a row, I ended up doing long-term assignments in fifth grade for like most of the school year. Um, so I, I really got to know what it, the job of, of being a classroom teacher is and all the roles that a teacher has to take on, like, um, you know. It's, you have to be kind of part social worker and nurse, and you got to talk to parents. And, um, uh, and that was, that was a really great kind of boot camp for just tr- trial by fire. You know, it was, it's, it's a hard job. It really is. And, um, and now this job, um, it's really, it's, it's my dream job. Like it's all the things that I always wanted to do um, as a teacher in public schools, but couldn't because we didn't have time, or you know, couldn't afford it, or whatever. And none of the things that I don't want to do, like I mean, not none of the things I don't want to do, but like some th- some of the things, like there was this benchmark unit in fifth grade about corn, and I'm like, um this could not be less relevant to these North Minneapolis kids. Like some of them have never been to a farm. Like they don't care about corn. And it wasn't even interesting. Like, you know, they could have uh, put like some more like politically, you know, controversial articles about corn, but it was just really boring articles about corn. I'm like, I, I can't I, I have to believe in I can't sell it if I don't believe in it right like the egg drop challenge like Newton's laws of motion I believe in that I can sell that you know um so everything that I teach is something that I strongly believe is important and that's the it's it's I love having that kind of freedom that's why I love this this job
1: thank you again for joining me and for allowing Heidi to share her story Remember, no new episode next week. Take this time to recharge. Teachers are going to need it. There's only one episode left this year, and I'm pretty excited about that. I am very proud of this project and want to thank you for making it possible. I do need help growing it, however, and you can be part of that. Just share it. That's all you need to do. Just sharing this podcast helps me grow numbers, helps us grow the audience, and helps widen the voice of the teachers who take their time to appear on this podcast. Tell your friends and family about it. Definitely tell the teachers in your life about it. There's a link in the show notes that you can share. That'll always take you to the latest episode. Thanks again, and I'll see you in a couple weeks on Life Behind the Desk.